Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. And today, we got to take an actual run, Yes. and we are in person, and I'm sorry for all of you that you couldn't hear the conversation before the podcast. We could not publish that. We could that. not. We could not. It was real. It was deep. It was God-honoring, and it was honest, <laughs> so we're going to try to hit some of the themes but um yeah we, we we've been we we have been um talking for about an hour iron Whoa. sharpening iron which <laughs> <laughs> is really really real but anyway um what is astonishing you that you can share that on i podcast? can share well i am astonished by our guest preacher on sunday um minister copeland cora copeland uh we call her cc for short um she we met her a couple of years ago. She and her husband, Elwood, have been worshiping at Dorada Church for a couple of years now, um, maybe about two and a half. And we met them while we were engaged in what we call our bread and prayer ministry. Mm -hmm. We go through the neighborhood uh, giving people loaves of bread, telling them that Jesus is the bread of life and offering to pray. And so one day we knocked on her door and offered to pray for her and... Um, uh, she, she said, oh, you're just in time. I'm, I'm working on a paper for a seminary. And, um, and of course, that got my attention. And mm -hmm. so she and I became friends. And during quarantine, uh, we often would, would Zoom and talk about um, her uh, Greek or Hebrew that she was working on. And uh, I have asked her to preach for me about four or five times. Where is she in seminary? I cannot not remember. at Gordon-Conwell. No, okay. it wasn't local. Okay. It wasn't uh, in the city. And uh, so she preached for us on Sunday and just did a phenomenal job. I was not nearly as good coming out of school. Uh, and I was editing the video yesterday to put on YouTube and, again, was just struck by how practical and how um, just deeply um, connected she was with the congregation. I mean, she had us just engage with what she was saying. Mm -hmm. and, and here's the thing. You know, I've been doing this for 20-plus years, and so there's a certain level of polish Mm -hmm. And sometimes you think it's the polish that, you know, um, it's not, it's not it's the polish. Not. Uh, so well, during during, you know, this covid period, I've, I've taken up photography and I've been studying photography. And um, I've noticed that you can buy almost any kind of digital camera these days and they take really good pictures. But what's become popular among photographers is to buy um this uh, uh it's called a, a mist filter mm -hmm. and it just gives your image like a grainy film look mm -hmm. and so i was editing the sermon video yesterday and just listening to her again thinking this is so beautiful because it's not polished yeah. there's an authenticity here there's a just a real beauty and depth and she Sometimes when I preach, it's it's so theoretical. I mean, it's true. It's yeah. it's it's yeah. faithful to the text, but it doesn't land where people are. Yeah, right? and um, I I was just really astonished by 
the work of God in this new preacher. And I, I love preachers. I love what we do. Um, but yeah, uh, her, her sermon on Sunday was a reminder for me, because I often fall into this pit, that you don't have to wait until something is good or polished or you feel comfortable with it to put it out into the world. Well, I think sometimes, like, this is the problem that historically in the Peace USA, because of the um, privilege that we have in seminary training, right, There, there's just a level of, um, well, there's a culture around preaching in our church and a level of competency and polish that that just is kind of it's just very common in the culture. And I will say that Presbyterian pastors tend to be very good preachers. Like that is just something that it's a, it's a strength. It's a muscle that is really has been just developed in our branch of the body of Christ. And it, it's good and it's beneficial and for the body. But I think sometimes it can almost feel like, like we step to the pulpit as if we're in a preaching competition instead of understanding that the sermon in and of itself only matters to the extent that it is a catalyst for life-giving relationship with Jesus, right? And so I think sometimes we can, and that's what I really appreciate about Andy Stanley telling preachers, like, stop chasing that aha moment. Like, stop Mm -hmm. getting up Mm -hmm. to the pulpit trying to be a good preacher. Like, don't get up to the pulpit and throw you know, throw junk at a wall and think it doesn't matter, but don't get up in the pulpit and think that you're up there to impress people because that's Mm -hmm. not what it's about. And, and to the, you as a preacher, it feels so good when you see people have a moment of just like, ah, like that's so cool. I've I've never never heard that. I mean, like that feels so good for our egos, but I mean, it is to, um, Diane Moffat will her, what to me, famous comment who she is the, um, head of the Presbyterian Mission Agency in, in our denomination, and she's a very good preacher, and people will come up to her and say, that was a great sermon, Pastor, and her response is, we'll see, right? Because it doesn't matter if people had felt a certain way when they were listening to it, and it doesn't matter if they have another chunk of knowledge to put in their brains, if it is not edifying and transformative and building the body of Christ in a way that ushers in and manifests the kingdom of God, then it doesn't matter. It's just sound and fury signifying nothing. And I and I think sometimes in other faith traditions that don't have the privilege and advantage of some, a required seminary education like we do, um, that, that, you know, God doesn't need people to be trained in a seminary in order to have the Holy Spirit work in their preaching. And so there's nothing bad about it, but but to look at the roots of the text that we take so seriously, like Paul and Peter didn't go to seminary, right? Yeah. Like it wasn't yeah. it wasn't necessary. And so for us to recognize at the end of the day, like if you're so busy being polished that it's all theoretical, it and that's why um, you know, it matters a lot. And it's not an either or, you can go to the other end, but like we do a lot and we have done more since COVID of really um, handing over different parts of the service for people in the congregation to lead because it matters for people to see their brothers and sisters stand up and bear witness and testify at what's true in their life. And it doesn't have to be new information and it doesn't have to be polished. There's power and testimony. And I mean, obviously pastor CC is 
is polished and is going to seminary, but there's just an advantage in coming from the place that she's come from. And there are advantages in coming to the places that we've come from. But when Absolutely. we're really wise and mature, we're able to see that that everything God is doing, God is not doing in the context of the PCUSA. And I we say this a lot on the podcast, but I just think that's a real weakness of our denomination is that we always think that we are the center of the kingdom of God. Or we we don't, you know, we wouldn't write that answer down on the theology paper. But functionally. But functionally, we do. We, you know, we, God forbid that a disaster happen in the world and we give to the Red Cross. No, 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 no. We give to the Presbyterian Disaster Association. And I... I mean, I'm not mad, but I also just think it's worth looking at what, I mean, what does that say about stewardship and what, what are we really better at responding to a tornado than the Red Cross? Maybe we are, but I don't even think we ask that question. What's been helpful to me uh, as a pastor and um, the Dorado Church congregation is to have God bring alongside of us people outside of the congregation, outside of the denomination to walk with us, to share their gifts, to become our friends, to be a part of the ministry, whether or not they become official, mm-hmm. quote unquote, members, they become a part of the mission, a part of the ministry. And that's been so helpful to have not simply different a different perspective, but a different way of doing what you've always done. For example, when, when Cece preaches, um, well, let me talk about my preaching first. When I preach, I read a single text mm-hmm. and I drill down into that text. Mm-hmm. She begins with a subject, like I'm talking about this. Here's the subject. And will take us to several scriptures. Different way of doing it, but it it's like, you know, when you, you, you're working out and you just mm-hmm. have your one workout routine yeah. and you need to do something different yeah. just to, to, to train and form your muscles. I get this deep sense that God is using people like her in our midst to strengthen us in ways we do not yet see. Well, and it is just a manifestation of the truth of like Corinthians 12, like this idea that the body of Christ is a body. And we can't say like, well, the Peace USA has no need of the non-denominational Christians. Like, Mm -hmm. no, you, you do. You got really different giftings and you don't always recognize one another's giftings because you're because it is expressed in such different functionality but it's one body like we are one body and i think we do kind of okay at seeing and acknowledging the um our sib- our kinship with denominations that we see as similar to our own so like the methodists the lutherans the episcopalians mm-hmm. and we have no problem sort of recognizing like oh we're going to do a an interfaith because there's a similar culture correct but what we what we have a problem with acknowledging is that this person whose tradition is very different than yours and is um doesn't have the same sort of structures and institutions and power sharing and hierarchy that yours does and then they show up in your community and they say i'm bishop so and so and like you should say it's nice to meet you bishop Mm -hmm. because this is not you don't get to decide how God is working and like we're too smart to be that stupid and I I think um we were really wounding ourselves by not recognizing that um the body of Christ is just bigger and deeper and wider than us or people who are 
one degree separate from us and we have a lot to learn and there's mutuality, but we have a lot to learn. And I mean, especially when it comes to thinking about church transformation and healthy and holy multi-ethnic ministry, like we aren't the experts in that. And so we, I, I just, I mean, and we were just saying how sometimes we, we interface with other pastors and other traditions who are really suspicious of our denomination and are, are you guys the frozen chosen or do you really know Jesus or whatever? And we were talking on the walk, like part of that is because they have experienced such deep disrespect from people within our, our tradition. And it just, you know, that's the manifestation of that. Um, I mean, let's just name it a lot. White supremacy, right? Yes. Um, That we feel like our denomination is more legitimate because of the cultural institutions that we have access to. And we think that other denominations are less uh, legitimate because they are not interconnected with cultural institutions in the way that we are. And that's just, I mean, Mm -hmm. that that is both... um, really a, a classic manifestation of white supremacy in our culture and also just so unbiblical. Like, it's just so yeah. silly that you would think if you take scripture seriously, it, it, it's ridiculous to have that kind of bias, but we do. And we just need to know it. And yes. Cause it. we love to say the Presbyterian church comes out of Scotland and, oh my gosh. and, and uh, it, it, in its structure parallels the American government, right? It's just, it's, it's gross. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we look at the history of the Pentecostal Church, which was which came out of a uh, revival in Azusa a house, Street Azusa revival. Street yeah. in Los Angeles, um, a, a half-blind um, African American man and um, this kind of ragtag multi-ethnic group of folks who were doing things that people thought were just strange and bizarre Unseemly, and no one gave them permission yes. and they had no authority yes who does that remind me of mm. <laughs> i feel like i read a book in the bible that was four letters and started with a and ended with s where people did things that they had no authority to do. They had no authority. Hmm. Anyway. But they had been with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so when we see or know about that history, we we have a, a bit of a superiority complex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's astonishing you? Well, so I was telling you um, that we had the deep honor and privilege um, on Sunday to um, have a worship service, a homegoing service for um, a family in our community. Um, the man who died, his name was Antonio Townsend, and um, you know they, they're a family, and this is pretty common, where they're, they're connected in meaningful ways to several congregations, um, but, but we've known this family for, I mean, years and years, and um, and so Antonio died very unexpectedly, and his wife asked if she could have the service at the Grove, which the answer is yes. And um, and I was on, you know honored to do it. And um, and it's just there's just a lot that goes into um, putting together a um, a funeral. Um, a memorial service, a homegoing service, whatever whatever label you want to put on that. And it's, it's obviously just a lot of culture expressed in moments of birth and death and just rituals. And so it's always an interesting thing to navigate as a part of a multi-ethnic community is to just sort of, and that is, you know, it's just really, in, it is, 
a really tender time and um, wanting to, we talk a lot when we have worship on Sunday mornings about, you know, worship is what we're, is what we're giving to God and God is the audience and our individual preferences, we need to put those aside because it's about the community and it's about what God is doing. And obviously a funeral worship service, a homegoing worship service is about God, but it is sort of the one place where I think it's deeply appropriate to center the preferences of the the grieving family and the primary members of the grieving family. Because one thing that we're doing is this community act of care to surround someone who is grieving with with love and with beauty and with nourishment and to bear witness to their pain and and just knowing that different people you know have have different ways of what of what that will look like for them and so um it's it's always just a really beautiful and vulnerable dance to do and I'm always really honored to be asked Um, and I just find that ministry I mean, I don't want to say that I enjoy it because that's the wrong word, but it is the most deeply meaningful part of my ministry. And um, and there was just this moment on Sunday that I just thought was so beautiful. And I just um, was just at one of those moments where you just think like, oh, gosh, it is such a deep, deep honor to be to be a pastor and to bear witness to this. And so he um, was young. He was just. I think 50 and died unexpectedly. Mm. And he has, um, he had a, a much younger sister and a son and two daughters. And so as part of the funeral service, um, there's just a lot of space for people to share their remembrances, which is not a part of the technical common Presbyterian church funeral, but I, I love it. Like I love a place for family members to stand up and bear witness to this is who this person was and this was what was good for them and 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 then you know and to say this person was God's gift to me to, me. to us mm-hmm. and to our family to mm-hmm. the community right and and then I you know I think it's great because then in the preaching moment the the person has been honored and named with mm-hmm. such specificity that then in the preaching moment you can say okay and here's what the goodness of God looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, with regard to you and to your loved one at this moment of death, right? Mm-hmm. It just frees you up to preach the gospel. And anyway, so so at the beginning of the service, um, his his younger daughter Amber was going to come up and speak, and she walked up, but um, her her aunt, so her dad's much younger sister, who wasn't much older, and then her sister and her her dad's son c- came up, and they were just all standing there together. And kind of had their arms around each other and they were just sharing like how much they love their dad and how much their dad loved them. And I just was looking at this image and just kind of the way the sanctuary lights were just, there's just this light surrounding them and they're Mm. holding each other and they're just talking about how much they loved their dad and how much their dad loved them and naming this legacy, you know, and he had been a very successful businessman and he was a very, you know, just well respected and liked person, but just what a beautiful, holy legacy Mm. that was. And, and as, as deeply as I grieve his loss and, and really name that as like, I'm not a person who's like, Oh, circle of life and death is beautiful, whatever. Mm. Like, no, like it's clear to me and my reading of scripture that death was not a plan 
um, up for creation. And that is why Jesus broke its power and you know, just all the places in scripture where it testifies to God's goodness, overwhelming and overpowering death and where, oh, death is your sting, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But but to be able to say that um, his, his love for his children um, is not mitigated or lessened, like what he gave them was precious and eternal and was holding them even as they mourned him. And just like, just the holiness of that. And mm-hmm. and I think that's what this moment of astonishment is all about, sort of mm-hmm. walking through this pastoral life ready to see the burning bushes and mm-hmm. to notice them and to worship God in them. And so it was just so beautiful. And then there was another moment later in the service where one of his friends stood up just to give a testimony about what a great friend he had been. And um, he was at, at one moment turned to Antonio's son um, and just said, you know, your dad, I, I mean, I can appreciate and acknowledge that there's just a special bond between a father and a son. Mm-hmm. And um, and he was just saying, you know, your dad and his son happened to be a doctor. And he said, your dad was very proud of all you accomplished. But what he was most proud of was the relationship that he had with you, which mm. I thought like, hey, just the proclamation of, Yes, you're a doctor, and yes, that's great. And particularly given, you know, the white supremacist culture we live in and just the realities of the black man becoming a doctor mm-hmm. is just really something to celebrate and honor in a particular way. And also to say that title and that function you play in the world, and for a lot of people, that would be the proof mm-hmm. that he'd been a good father or that you were a good son. But more than that is this relationship, this love that we have for each other is what I'm most proud of. The way I love you and the way you love me, that's what I'm proud of, yeah. not your not your degree. And then the man said, because Antonio was clearly someone who knew how to be a friend and who valued relationships. And so then his friend said, and I want you to know that your relationship with your dad is not over, but also you are separated, but you're not alone. And then he motioned to the congregation and clearly he had planned this and there were four other men in the congregation who stood up at that moment and was like you know your dad was our friend Mm. and and we are you know we are your dad like we you know and just this i mean like i just gives me chills to just think about this moment for this young man who's who's not that young he's 30 and he's a doctor and Mm -hmm. like a lot of people would be like you know you're you're good but but Antonio's friend, again, just this legacy extending beyond death, his friend saying, like, no, we know what your dad valued in life, and we want to, you know, maintain our friendship with our friend by pouring into you mm. and for you to know that you are still going to have your access to your dad through us. And just, like, the beauty of that and, mm-hmm. you know, in the context of, our earlier conversation, like, you know, that's not, you go to seminary and they'll be like, this is what a funeral needs to be. And and it's not bad and it's not wrong, but it's not complete. And I think that's our problem is sometimes we think like, oh, our tradition is complete and we are the pinnacle and everything else can be evaluated in how how many degrees close or far it is from us. And just to be able to say like, no, the Holy Spirit (laughs) is not limited to your labels or to your institutions or whatever. And like, that was just glory. And it was such a proclam, like uh, such a moment of proclamation for, for everyone there. And in a real way, what I think a homegoing service 
a funeral service should be for everyone is a moment to contemplate not only you know, just all of our mortality and to be able to say, you know, what really matters and what is holy and what will last and what do I want my legacy to be? And we live in a culture that says your worth is determined by what you own and how much you have and what titles you have. And it just really matters that we as a community will gather to give thanks for a life and to celebrate and to say, you know, the world might might not recognize, um, because you know, that was just my takeaway was like, man, this was a tremendously wealthy man. Mm. Like, and I don't know a thing about their finances, but I'm just saying like, as a believer, when you talk about storing up treasure in heaven, like, like he was a tremendously wealthy, great man. And it was just a real honor to sit there and worship God by giving thanks for his life and to bear witness to that. And so I just was really, um, it was just astonishing in, in the best way. Yeah. I, two responses come to my mind. Number one, um, Part of what I experience as holy at a funeral service is that it's a time when I see people both reaching out and up for God mm -hmm. and out to others at the same time. My other response as the phone rings. <laughs> Oh, it's so great. Like you, you still have a home phone. That's that's cool, I guess. <laughs> we still have a home phone because we have kids who don't have cell phones. And so if we didn't have a home phone when they were home alone, they would be cut off. So I'm sorry. Two no, responses. It, People were reach up and out to God and to one another. Yeah, and, and my second response is that... Um, The story that needs to be told more often is the relationship between black fathers and black sons. Mm -hmm. The story, the kind of story you just told um, happens a lot. That situation, you, you have that a lot. It just gets lost mm -hmm. in all of the other stories we tell and all of the other stories we think we know about the African-American male experience, that gets really lost. That, that is the, mm -hmm. the relationship between fathers and sons. Now, like any other community, there's a level of dysfunction that needs uh, healing. But there is a... Um, there is a, uh, a connection, sometimes a um, nonverbal language. <laughs> um, like when I go home, they're, they're just things that my dad and I communicate without saying about our experience in the world. I mean, I, it just, I can just say a few things and I know he gets it. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, um, again, it's, it's, it's a reality that isn't often shared. And I think it's, it's beautiful that that moment happened at a funeral for others to see and experience. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and in a 
sense to be welcomed into um, because I find that many of those stories are kind of, um, yeah, they're, they're in the corners and the shadows, but they, they are there, and they're not in the public space mm-hmm. like at a funeral. So that's, that's really beautiful well, and powerful. I, part of what we do in church is like testify mm-hmm. to what we believe is the ultimate and eternal reality. And what we, we believe is that relationships will be healed. And, you know, the culture has a certain understanding of what it means to be a good father or a good family and I think it's the job of the church to really um, complicate that narrative and to say, you know, if your kid, you know, goes to Harvard and becomes a double PhD, but y'all hate each other, that, you know, and to be able to say, if you are, if your child is in and out of, you know, the the criminal justice system, but there's deep, there's deep and authentic and holy love. I mean, like we just, these are, these are really um the narratives are more complicated than we mm. want to believe that they are. Mm. And we need to pay better attention to the ways that the deep brokenness of the world um, interrupts these it interrupts and, and wounds relationships. Like I, it, it was a throw off comment, but somebody had posted an article about some, some women who were on the today show trying to destigmatize marijuana use and talking about how using marijuana recreationally made them better mothers. And somebody had posted underneath that, like, I bet that's true for black dads also, but we wouldn't know cause they're all in prison. Right. And just this idea that, um, you know, families in general, but black families in particular are severed and disrupted and criminalized by, you know, by the deep, by, by the 13th amendment, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and we don't, we don't recognize that. So we have this image of what we, what we are told that, that black men are. And then when there are, um, stories that are not like that, they're lifted up as anomalies or like, Hey fellas, be more like this guy. When the reality is the, you know, my, my friend Rebecca, who was married to a black man when they were, um, doing getting ready for the birth of their first child and they were at this Lamaz class and learning about breastfeeding and like all of the people who had partners were partnered with black men and we're just mm. saying like isn't that it's so yeah. out counter to what we would sort of unthinkingly expect if we our notions were only formed by the media and our homogenous communities Correct. we would think like oh the white men would be more likely to show up it's not true like we have this thought that black men don't care as much about their mm-hmm. kids or we believe Maury Povich or Ronald Reagan that black men are just going around and fathering kids and not get mean and like it's just not it is not true and but because we're so isolated and segregated we don't know different examples but i think you know in the context of a church to be able to say there's no greater i mean and i say this knowing that there are a lot of people who just experience deep pain and brokenness in their families and I, mm. and that and you know me too but also to to love people well is the pinnacle of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ mm-hmm. and that doesn't always get to be expressed in family systems and that's real but to for someone's legacy at the end of the day to be this person treasured people and treasured relationships and and loved people and let people knew that they were worthy of love like there's no greater legacy in the kingdom of god Mm. and i don't know that we in the church especially sometimes in these historically white denominations we tend to stand up at a funeral and celebrate people's 
accomplishments, institutional accomplishments. Um, and you know, that's a, that's a sad thing that we, we aren't really necessarily telling a different story than what institutions, secular institutions would tell, which is, you know, the titles and awards and money is what makes someone great. Yeah, our friend, um, Albert Moses, about every three months, maybe four months, will call me and say, preacher, I know you work hard, but do not sacrifice your child on the altar of the church. Mm -hmm. And that is his word to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because... You know, a lot of people in the secular world, in quote, important jobs, as a badge of honor, believe that they can't rest and they can't show up for their kids. And, you know, you're a doctor, you're a whatever, and so you just can't, and everybody understands it. And we try to say, oh, well, we're important too, so we're going to adopt those same patterns and that same level of busyness and wear it as a badge of honor. Instead of saying, like, look, if you want to take the fact that I know how to rest and that I recognize my vulnerability and that I practice balance. If you want to take that as proof that I'm weak or unimportant or what I do doesn't matter. Okay. Like you can do that, but I know um, who I am and I know what I'm called to do. And I know that the yoke of the Lord is easy and the burden is light and I'm not saving anybody. So um, (laughs) I can, I can go to my kids basketball game. Um, so anyway, not that my kids play basketball. Thank goodness. Anyway. But they run track. <laughs> uh, they When they feel like it, they do. Some of them. Anyway, <laughs> what are you thinking about? Well, um, you know, our kids were out last Friday because of the snow that didn't really snow, but yeah. they were out. And my son had um, a few at-home assignments, and we were working through those on Friday And he had one assignment where he had to read a book about Martin Luther King Jr. and write his own I Have a Dream speech. And um, it was, the book was fine. The book was fine. The book was fine. (laughs) I'm not knocking the teacher. Um, I I think the, the, um, and the assignment, the writing assignment was fine. I think it was totally appropriate and good. But... And again, this is not about my son's teacher because I think uh, she is wonderful and works hard and loves our son. The assignment was a reminder of how so many of our children are miseducated. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of the beginning of their miseducation in the school system. As we were reading this child-centered book um, about Martin Luther King Jr., there was so much, and necessarily so, about the the hardship of black people. Mm -hmm. And so from, it, it was a reminder that from a very early age that what black children get in this country in terms of their story and their history is you start with slavery. And then after that, you get the civil rights movement, and pretty much there's nothing. Uh, you, you might get these days the mention of, of President Obama, but that's about it. And if, when I think about my own education, it really wasn't until college that I even had the tools. I, I didn't 
get more education in terms of classes, but I got the tools to right. do research, and that continued in a seminary. As a matter of fact, at the end of my uh, time in seminary, I, love I, this story. I went to the dean, <laughs> and I said, you owe me two degrees. Mm -hmm. He was like, wait, uh, no, I'm looking at your thing here. We do not owe you. I said, yes. I took everything that the curriculum said I needed to do, and then I also went to the library and researched specifically for the African-American community. Uh, and so I pretty much did double the work. And he says, oh, I get that, but you're not getting two degrees. Uh, Nor are we changing our curriculum. That is correct. Um, and for white kids, they often get someone from Europe, dis quote unquote, discovered mm -hmm. <laughs> North America, uh, then the story of how the country was settled, uh, and then later on, you get um, quite a bit of European history. And so the, the, the gaps get filled in. And for us, it cre there, there's this, um, this, this gap, this identity crisis, this, this misunderstanding of who we are. Y you just don't get a lot of pre-slavery teaching and understanding and clarity in terms of history. And so back in my day, boy, that was a, <laughs> that's a, that sounds like an old person speaking. But when I was in school, we labeled our education as Eurocentric, mm -hmm. right? It was the right label. And what I've come to see is that our Eurocentric education is the root system of white supremacy. It, mm -hmm. it forms part of the root system. Yeah, for sure. And it's not as it's not as simple as oh, we we leave out a part of African history. Um, and so as we end January and we uh, approach uh, February, Black History Month, I'm thinking about how to fill in some of the gaps, not only for my child, but also for the church, because that's also a place where, number one, we just get very little history in mm -hmm. general in terms of, I mean, we get, uh, w once you get past the apostles, it, it's just all a blur. You get a little reformation, mm -hmm. and then basically it's, okay, this is the denomination that I'm mm -hmm. in, but it, it, we don't fill in the gaps. And we especially don't do early Christian African history, that there was mm -hmm. an African Christianity before slavery. And, and there was an African Christianity way before there was a European Christianity. Absolutely. And even in the narrative of the book of Acts, right, you right. get the, the, the Ethiopian. Ethiopian eunuch taking his new faith to Ethiopia before Peter goes to Macedonia to take the faith to Europe. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's really interesting because you, you grow up, like I took Latin in high school and, you know, one of the, why do you take Latin? Because you are just presented as a fact what is really a value, which is, you know, Greco-Roman Greco culture is classical is the classical human civilization. Like that's what human mm -hmm. civil that's when human civilization started. And then everything after that is, you know, degrees close or removed from that. So the mm -hmm. idea that, you know, there's this whole rich they're just other continents with other entire cultures and ways of understanding. The idea that there's a huge, you know, Muslim empire that that made huge advances 
in what we label the dark ages. Right. Because and kept what we would call European history. If not for um, Muslims in the European Middle Ages, we probably would know very little about Plato, right? right? And right. Aristotle. Right. And I, I mean, I, I think it's really um, just important that we are able to look at that from a, you know, from a perspective of, for me, and I don't expect this in the public schools, but, you know, for me and my children, my family, the, the foundational culture and document is, I mean, is, is the biblical document, right? Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, that's my foundational story and I understand anthropology in the context of that. And I understand also that that's not an abstract you know, that's a part of my culture and my belief system. You know, I, I get the challenge of that there is no absolute truth when it comes to telling history that's not influenced by values. And so I, I just think it's important that we are recognizing that, you know, we're telling 10th graders that, you know, the cradle of civilization is Greece. That's a value statement. Mm -hmm. And it's a, mm -hmm. and it's a value statement that, has been foundational for white supremacy and the oppression of other groups of people. And we need to say that and acknowledge that and, and question that. And it's just astonishing to me that, you know, I'm not that old. So it's just crazy. I mean, but as you said, like you, you come up in it and you're just, you know, school is a game and your teachers tell you something and you're like, I'm writing this down so I can get the right answer on the test mm -hmm. or whatever. And it just takes a long time before you can even get to a point where you go, Oh, like, wait, those are, those are not objective. Those are subjective statements. And and what do I do with that And it's now? part of the black tax to have to spend emotional, mental energy to work through those things. Right. And I think that's what there's so much um, pushback among white parents right now because really white families and children are invited. And I'm here for it. But what they're saying is, oh, now we have to pay a white tax, right? Like, mm -hmm. we can't just learn our history and walk home and feel great. We have to really wrestle with what does it mean? Where did my ancestors stand? Like, talk about, like, there's the Reformation and now here we are. No, 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 no. What does it mean that, you know, all of these Presbyterians came over here holding slaves, right? And, like, mm -hmm. how do you understand? What does it mean? And this is, you know, drives me crazy when I hear Presbyterians proudly proclaim, like, oh, Presbyterian pastors helped write the declaration and we founded the government and the system of government is based on our polity. And I'd be like, friends, that's nothing to be proud of. So like, that means <laughs> you established the system. You established the inequalities and the right. racism and the white supremacy. You that you had a worldview that said yes. only white people are human. And that, that ha you had in no trouble, in the name of Jesus, you had yes. no trouble squaring that with your gospel. Yeah. So if we're going to proudly talk about like, oh, look, we made America. And you'd be like, friends, do you, do you, I mean, and I'm not, and I'm not mad at acknowledging the limitedness of it to sort yeah. of say, oh, my ancestors way far back realized I don't like the way I'm being treated and nobody has the right to treat yep. me that way. And can we also just acknowledge, wait, I turned around and did it to other people. Yes. That when I, that when the power I had, the power that I had, I felt was God endowed. It's like but the, the power story of the that camp other people, that you were yeah. telling me about before um, 
right. before we hit record. Right. 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 So we like to think that people who have been victims of oppressive systems will design a system that is transformative and non-oppressive. And that's not that's but not you true. You are formed. You are shaped, shaped by it to do and the very thing that you're trying to um, liberate yourself from. Yeah, like one of the many academic projects that I've conceived of and abandoned is I think it's really interesting to compare the archaeological records of the founding of Israel with the biblical narrative mm. of the founding of Israel because what's so interesting is the archaeological records suggest that there was not this this conquest narrative that we get in Joshua did not factually happen, that the people of Israel didn't cross over and then form a mighty army and go around like conquering people and running them out, that basically they went into places and spaces where cities had been abandoned and they created community and invited in other sort of vagabond, vagrant people and said, you know, come and be part of us and share our culture and share our identity. And that seems, according to the archaeological record, to be what happened. But the way that people remembered and told the story was we came in here and we conquered and we enslaved and we, and I'm like, oh, you, the, the experience that you had in Egypt, even as God rescued it, you from it, became your concept of what legitimacy and greatness looked yes. like. And so that really the last wound of the oppressor is to form the oppressed in in their image, right? And I mean, there's lots of places that you can see that in contemporary culture. And I think what's helpful is we have this narrative about the human condition of sinfulness that mm -hmm. says sin is not related to ethnicity, period. So you can't say, oh, some people are more valuable intrinsically because of their ethnicity, but you also can't say some people are more inherently vulnerable to become unjust sinners because of their ethnicity. The reality is the the stain of sin on humanity is deep and and all consuming and we're we're all we're all vulnerable. And I, I think and this is a, a scary thing to say, but it's it's one of the things that I see in the relationship between Israel and Palestine right now, right? That Israel out of its deep and real and tragic experience as the victims of evil in Germany have then come into a space and and in their rightful need to have a safe place to live in peace and prosper have seen their neighbors the Palestinians as a threat who need not and not all Israelis like there are there are heroic um, people in Israel who are fighting for the rights of their Palestinian neighbors but to deny citizenship to steal property um, and and to weaponize the legal system against the Palestinians in a lot of the ways that in the early days of the Third Reich, it was weaponized against them. There's not concentration camps. I understand that. But I'm just saying, never again is not being manifested mm. in the way that that we would hope. And And I say this as a white person with so much of the stain of guilt and sin on my, like I. <laughs> well, how often do the prophets in the Old Testament have to remind God's people, remember Where you, came you from. were slaves in Egypt. You were a wandering Therefore, Aramean. do not oppress the widow, the orphan, 
the stranger. Let justice roll down like mm-hmm. waters. God has shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And yet over and over again, Israel fell into the the trap of oppressing of the what? poor. Wanting to be like the nations. Wanting to be, Wanting like, the to be like the nations. Yes. Like that is consistently so, what, and we say, oh, that means they were doing the wrong religion. And I, the reality is religion is not separate from life. And yes. what God is saying through the prophets is you are embodying the same value systems and structures as all the other nations. And if you worship me, your life together as a community ought to look different. And you ought to understand your chosenness differently than people in other nations do. That your chosenness doesn't mean that your lives are intrinsically more valuable and other people exist for to to serve you. You should understand what the covenant says, which is all people will be blessed through you, right? Like you are chosen in order that all of creation would be redeemed and restored to God. And we interpret scripture through the lens of the history and culture we know so well. And so that we can't even see that it's been there all along Mm -hmm. telling us that we were supposed to be salt and light in a different way. And what we think is like, no, we're going to be the ones who finally are the right kind of colonizers for Jesus. Like that was not ever what we were supposed to be doing and it's just right there in scripture it is the refrain all along and we have to be bold enough to say that the kingdom that god is manifesting in this world is going to overturn every institution even the ones that we legitimately honor and see as good are gonna are gonna fade away in the context of god's shalom which we ridicule and reject as um, we don't even desire it. Um, so. and we've said it over and over again on this podcast. Is that this is one reason why um, repentance has to be valued in the church, lest you make your story the oppression of others when you claim to be um, you're, you're fighting oppression, right? So it's, it is... It should not surprise us that Europeans who left oppressive monarchies then became oppressors of, of, of different ethnicities. That should not surprise us. And we should value repentance, not um, – there's this movement now that says, you know, we don't want – uh, white people to feel bad. We don't want we don't want them to be anxious or feel guilty, and and so let's not talk about these hard issues. But we want to create an environment, a culture that says no, it is okay. It it's more than okay. It's healthy, healing, and holy to repent and to lament and to lament. Right, yes. and just to say, which doesn't mean. We're throwing your whole history in the right. trash, and which doesn't, doesn't mean, mean we're throwing value. you right. in the trash. It doesn't mean you don't have any value, but it means facing some hard realities about the past and And sitting lamenting. with discomfort. Like, yeah. that's something that as people of faith, we should understand. And, you know, I... There was but it was hard for irony. Israel. Well, <laughs> I was going to say, I'm like, this is the whole point of the exile. What the story that the prophets show up to tell the people who experience exile and the loss of the promised land is they don't show up and say, you're the innocent victims and God is going to avenge you. The prophets show up and say, no, 
this is God's judgment against you because you did not live faithfully in the prophet's land. So, I mean, just this idea that as people of faith, and that's what I think is so amazing about the Bible is, you know, that's the history that was preserved, not the history of like, let's, you know, God hate, God damn the Assyrians, the history of we are suffering right now because we created systems that were anti-God and they destroyed us. And God has not abandoned us, but God is not protecting us from the fruits of our sinful choices. And, you know, the people of Israel knew how to sit with the truth of their sin. And, and then we have lost that lesson. And we think anybody that tells us something that makes us uncomfortable is antichrist. And that's just, I mean, you can think that if you want to, but I don't know what Bible you're reading. Um, and you can say both things, both I am fearfully, wonderfully made, and I am eternally held by God. And I sin in real ways that harms not just me, but harms others. Mm -hmm. And God does not think it's cute. Right. I mean, no. And and I think that's what's hard is we think like, well, if God loves me, then that means God has to approve and understand of everything I've done. That is not the witness of scripture. It it yeah. it is it is more paradoxical than we would like to admit. Um, and you know, that's why David is always showing up and saying, you know, cleanse me and I'll be clean and a broken and contrite heart is the one sacrifice you won't reject it. Like that's what's wanted, not any of these performative acts, but actual grief before the Lord. And and, you know, David is such an excellent example of like, we don't know what to do with him because he will not be a hero for us, but God does not reject him. And we have to live with the fact that like he did what he did to Uriah and Bathsheba, you know, and also he still was who he was in the eyes of God. And that whole story is not, you know, you just can't put him on one side or another. He's, he's both. And living with the reality that, you know, Solomon built the temple to Yahweh, who liberated the people from slavery in Egypt, and he built it with slave labor, right? It's just a misunderstanding of chosenness. So, like, it was bad when we were slaves, but when you're slaves, that's okay. No, ma'am. Like, that's not the lesson that we were supposed to walk away with. But the fact that we do walk away with it shouldn't surprise us because that's always the lessons that humans walk away with because we have an enemy and he's good at his job. Yeah. So... Yeah. So what are you thinking about? Well, this is, I don't even think we'll have to talk about this long because it's so apropos of everything we've been talking about. But I'd like to talk about Mitch McConnell, please. I've been thinking about Mitch McConnell Oy. because I'm from Kentucky. Oh. And last mm. week he just made an amazing the statement about voters. Yeah. Oh, he, my. He was uh, having a press conference and he was talking about how he was not going to support um, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. um, and someone said, you know, what what is your response to the concerns that people of color have about being disenfranchised from voting? And his quote, and this is a quote, the concern is misplaced yes. mm -hmm. because if you look at the statistics, African-American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans. Oh, oh my. So I think Help I need us. to say. Help us. So one, A, let's not get lost. That is factually inaccurate. Like if you break out Americans by ethnicities, African-Americans do not vote at the same rate as other ethnicities. They don't. Partially because the system isn't broken. The system is working. The incarceration system disenfranchises people from their voting rights. Black communities are over-policed. 
poor people are desperate and are more likely to create, to commit crimes in order to survive and to be prosecuted to the highest sense of the, I mean, like black voters are disenfranchised. They are. So leaving everything else aside, that is, if not a lie, just a blatant, inaccurate statement of the facts, period. And, and I think it is really interesting to notice when people inadvertently tell the truth. Mm. And so what Mitch McConnell revealed is that he does not believe that African Americans are, are Americans. Americans. He doesn't believe that they are real Americans. Now he qualify he immediately said, you know, what what people always say, which is this is not what I think and it's not what I meant and I just misspoke and I just left out the word all. I should have said African-American voters are voting in as high a percentage as all Americans. And I would just like to say that as a follower of Jesus Christ, in moments of um, just flow and sometimes extreme duress, we tell the truth in a way that we wouldn't if we were more in control. And, you know, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Like, I think that for white people who make racist statements, and I am a white person, and I know that at times I make statements not intentionally, but because as we've been talking about all along, like I'm in this culture, mm -hmm. and there are just things that are deep in my unconscious that can get expressed, and I, I try to consciously filter them out, and whatever, like just sometimes things are in you that, with my conscious mind, I would say these are not the values that I want to hold. They are not the values that I intend to hold. But I understand that sometimes I operate in them. And I think for white people, like what I really just want to say is when something like this happens, I would like to see white people say, hey, I understand that I said that. And... I need to think about why that came out of my mouth. And I need to be open to the possibility that maybe what I was was more truthful than I am even aware that I was being, right? Like maybe I'm not aware intentionally that I hold these views, but I'm at least going to be open to the possibility and curiosity of where did that come from? Because it's not even like in the moment he said uh, black Americans vote at the same rate as Americans. I mean, all Americans, right? Like he just, he didn't, because I understand people do have slips of the tongue, mm -hmm. but I also just think, I mean, A, that comment comes in the context of him literally saying, I won't support the Voting Rights Act. And I also just think it's really interesting that hit the beginning of his statement is, the concern is misplaced. So he, as a powerful white man, is telling black people, your experience isn't valid and your feelings aren't mm -hmm. real, right? So, so he's saying, I am the expert yeah. in your experience, and I'm telling you, your experience isn't what you say it is. It's what I say it is. And mm -hmm. I just, you know, it happened. It To me, sometimes people talk about, like, well, what is unconscious bias? Like, what does that look like? In my opinion, if you want to know what is, un and that's generous on my part, if you want to know what unconscious bias is, it's Mitch McConnell saying out loud, 
black Americans aren't Americans, right? Like they're lucky they get to vote at all. They get to vote as much as real Americans do. And by real Americans, we mean white Americans. Yes. Well, um, that reminds me that since we've uh, recently celebrated the King holiday, that, um, you know, people, people, the system, people who opposed King's work really saw him as dangerous when he began his poor people's campaign. When he sought to unite white people and black people. And he was dangerous. Yes. And here is the... Good dangerous. Sorry. Yes. Here's the... Here's the... I think here's what scared Mitch McConnell. It's not that he had the slip of the tongue and he doesn't want to be seen as revealing his true thoughts about black Americans. It's that that there are enough white people, white Americans of sensitive, holy conscience that if they heard a politician just flat out say African Americans are not Americans, would say, hold up. And there would be a kind of, um, there would be a unity that would unmask the current um, veil of, of lies that, that's being given to white people. And it would it would shift things. Well, it shift the power. I yes. mean, he and I mean, this is the thing. I believe that he is opposing the Voting Rights Act because he knows that if Black Americans begin to have access to vote at the same rate that White Americans do, he and his party will lose power. And so that's why they're opposing it because they want to maintain power. And I, you know, I think it's really also important to say. This isn't like gotcha journalism, right? Like it wasn't like somebody was sitting at his lunch table with a recording machine under the napkin. And no, he is a politician. He is arguably the second most powerful person in the United States government. He was standing at a press conference. People said, why are you opposing this bill? And this was his answer. So I don't want to hear like, oh, that's ungenerous or you should know. Sir, you talk out loud for a living and you have a lot of power and your power changes people's lives. And you said what you said and you don't get to go like, whoopsie, I didn't mean it. You said it. Yeah. And and the the mass of African-American humanity said, oh, yeah, we already knew this. And so you're right. We just keep. Well, we're just going to keep marching forward and. um, uh living for Jesus. I, it It is not a surprise, but it is a surprise. Well, it, and I just think white people have to wrestle with, we want to go like, oh, it's not that bad. He didn't yeah. mean it. Like, let's be generous. And I'm like, Mitch McConnell is not the victim in the story. And for the two of us, it should remind us of the system we're in as a denomination. So we are in a system that holds quarterly presbytery meetings in the middle of the day in the middle of the week, mm-hmm. right? Who has the availability <laughs> to go to a meeting? Not people who are 
living paycheck to paycheck, not people who have regular jobs. You have to have a certain kind of lifestyle <laughs> to be able to attend you those meetings. You have to have meetings. a certain amount of agency yes. in order to be able to do that. Yes. And that, I think, is, I mean, it's actually a perfect example. We say in our, de- our denomination is, our denomination is led equally by elders, by teaching elders and ruling elders, that mm-hmm. you do not have to go to seminary. You do not have to work for a church to be a leader in the Peace USA. You can be a ruling elder who is a lay person who's elected by the congregation, and you have just the same amount of power and authority mm-hmm. a- as anyone else. And the truth is, that's true on paper and not in reality. And I mean, there are people who hold paying paid positions in the denomination who are ruling elders like that's true but these are not uncollege educated people who are living paycheck to paycheck i mean like the reality is where we where and when and how we decide to meet reveals who we expect to come to the table and whose voices we want there. And we can mm-hmm. say anything we want on paper because paper's cheap. But, mm-hmm. and I get it. Like as a pastor, I don't love a Saturday meeting because I work at, I mean, like I get it. And also then we need to just stop lying and saying that ruling elders are co-leaders with teaching elders. It's not true if, because it's not just the presbytery meetings. It's also every other decision-making gathering, well, not every other, but most other decision-making gatherings in the presbytery are often held in the middle of a weekday. So who's going to be there? Not somebody in my church who works at Walmart. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if we really want to shift things in the country... I know this is this is just going to sound overly simplistic, but I'm going to say it anyway. It boils down for me um, as a matter of love. If we truly love our brothers and sisters in this denomination, we we change things so that they can be a part. If we if we love all the people in the country, and it's not about the power of my group, then we shift things so that all have equal access. And um, these, these voting laws, of course, are just clearly designed to suppress African-American vote. There's just no... Right. And I, I mean, even on Sunday, we were meeting with someone who, a couple local leaders... Um, who are working with folks who are involved in the criminal justice system or folks who are um, you know, formerly incarcerated and trying to um, be reintegrated into society and community in a healthy, life-giving way. Like in how few people are doing that work and how, you know these folks are invisible in, in their problems. But um, just this idea that, you know, Mitch McConnell, because I just think it's it's tough when even you as a pastor have to say, like, this is going to be naive, but let's talk about what does loving people look like, mm-hmm. right? That even within a church conversation, we're like, can we talk about love? Because we're talking right. about real life problems. But like, we have to be able to say unapologetically, like, it's not loving for, I mean, if nothing else in the world, it's not loving for Mitch McConnell to say, people feel like they're disenfranchised. Oh, well, they're not. I mean, mm-hmm. even even if it were true that they were not disenfranchised, a response of love would be, well, 
why do you feel this way? It matters to me that mm -hmm. you see yourself as disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. So I need to get proximate. I need to get curious. I need to have a humility that makes me think maybe I don't know what I think I know, or maybe I'm not here on the merit, or mm. maybe even if I am where I'm supposed to be, it actually matters to me if people in my community feel like I think they're not an American, right? And I think, you know, obviously the secular government is the secular government, but this is one reason why we as church people just, I, I want people to use the gospel as their framework when they make decisions in every area of their life. But we as a church can got to stop thinking that the beloved kingdom is coming by getting the right people in political office. Like that is not the way the kingdom's coming, that the kingdom comes through the body of Christ and the body of Christ is our congregations. Like we are forming people who are forming culture in every institution in our local communities and in the world. And if we continue to wait for like somebody like, oh, well, let's just get Mitch McConnell out of power and get, well, not Harry Reid because he's now earned his reward, but get whoever in charge of the Democratic Party in Like, no, yeah. that yeah. those institutions are not going to save us. Those are the institutions that are passing away. And so we are responsible for good stewardship with the agency that we have in those institutions. Mm -hmm. But we got to stop. We got to stop it. Like we're obsessed with that instead of obsessed with how can we be the beloved community where we are? Because there are people out here doing the work. A lot of them do not have titles and degrees or roles in our churches. Correct. And so we need to get proximate to the people who are getting most proximate to the most powerless members of our culture and to say, not here's what I'm going to do for you, but let me accompany you and walk along beside you. And can yes. I learn from you? What is your experience like? What can you teach me? The other day, other night, um, I was at Party City buying balloons for the church, and um, I was like, I bought this big thing of balloons, and um, in the line behind me was an older black woman, just had this sweet grandmother vibe about her, and so I'm paying for my balloons, and uh, the guy behind the register uh, said to me, do you want your receipt? And before I said anything, this wonderful woman behind me said, son, now you know, you, you got to take that receipt before you leave the store, right? And we had a laugh. I was like, you know what? You are absolutely right. My mother would say the same thing. And I know I better have a receipt walking out this door because who knows what will happen. Yeah. Like my white friends need to know that reality Correct. because someone can come along and legitimately say, right, all things are equal. You can shop anywhere you want to. Yeah. Yes, but here's a reality that you would not see unless we're hanging out together. Well, you, would, yeah. you wouldn't know this reality unless you have relationships with, with people and are willing to listen when they tell you these kinds of experiences. And do the work of establishing the trust that people feel like they want to be vulnerable yes. and share with you yes. a situation that is really painful and potentially yes. humiliating. And Because I was thinking like when these people were teaching us about you know, just what it's like for people who get involved with the criminal justice system, it's so tempting for white middle-class people just to be like, okay, I get it. It's bad. It's not ideal. But if you would just make good choices, it wouldn't just matter, right? Rules. Like just do what you're supposed to do. And I'm like, but what, but what we don't, the connection that we don't make is like everyone that I know who sends their white children to college expects them to drink, 
while they're at college, expects them to have some stories about like, oh, I was so drunk and I went and climbed up this pole and stole down that flat. And like, and we just are like, oh, those are funny stories. Like those are just kids being kids. Like that's just whatever. What you don't understand is when your kids do that at college, you think it's a rite of passage when young kids of color make the same kinds of do exhibit the same kinds of behaviors in different neighborhoods or even the same neighborhoods, but with black skin on, they end up involved in the criminal justice system, right? So you think like, oh, well, if kids would just behave, if people would just behave, they wouldn't get involved. And then it wouldn't matter that the, you know, the parole system is unjust and designed to people with people black in jail, or it doesn't matter that the 13th Amendment says that slavery is still okay as long as people are incarcerated, because nobody gets incarcerated unless they've done something wrong. But your kids do things wrong all the time. You drive home from a restaurant with, when you've had too much to drink, and you're like, oh gosh, that was a dumb choice. I'm glad I'm okay. You drive around with expired tags, and you think it's fine. You use marijuana recreationally, and you think it's fine. Like, you're on the freaking Today Show, talking about how using marijuana makes you a better mother you don't you think that you are morally on a different plane and that people who are involved in the criminal justice system all of them are making reckless dangerous violent choices and i'm not saying that nobody is but i'm just saying like if you're if white kids and white communities got policed in the same ways at the same rates that black communities and black kids did we'd all be in prison too Mm. we just think that we're living better and that's why we're having different outcomes and it's not true but but ripping that illusion away is so painful because then you have to go like well wait a minute maybe I don't have what I have because I worked hard and played by the rules. And maybe my family isn't where my family is because we just were responsible and other people were irresponsible. And maybe I don't live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And maybe there's not liberty and justice for all here. And maybe I can't just teach my children that the founding fathers were like demigods who brought enlightenment to the world. Like that's really painful to get rid of those illusions And also, this is why we need, in my opinion, to let the Bible be our moral framework because there are no heroes there. But maturity requires that we do that. I mean, we have to do it with our parents. When you you become an adult, one of the things you have to do to become a healthy adult is to see your parents in their humanity, that they are, on the one hand, wonderful people who brought you into this world and gave you so much. And they are human beings with flaws and issues. And you don't have to worship them on the one hand or throw them in the trash on the other. You, right. you, you can see them as wonderfully flawed people. And it's just a, and, and accept them. And for accept who they are, them, right? yes. And I think this is the difference. Like, I want to accept people and reject systems, right? And that boy, is the that's whole a thing. good yeah. That <laughs> we need to write that down somewhere. Yes, somebody write a- that down. Accept people, reject systems. Which we yes. do the opposite. I mean, yeah. we do the opposite. Yeah, we got to stop talking. <laughs> we really have to stop talking. I love it that. I that, mean, I just that, that my internal timer goes off, and I'm like, "Wait, this is done. <laughs> Nobody wants to listen to us anymore." But it's those exact words every time. Hey, we, stop we need to stop talking. It's because my whole life, people have been saying to me, "Yeah, I've liked this, but like now enough." And I'm like, "Okay, fair, fair." 
Unless we need to stop recording. We can keep talking when we'll stop recording. Hey, thanks for listening. If yes. you're listening, we're glad you're listening. Thank you. If you want to find out more about what God is doing at Derida Presbyterian Church, you need to go to D-E-R-I-T-A-P-R-E-S dot org, which is the website that even as we speak, Yolando Hinton Wonderkund is redesigning. Um, so so check it out and check out the Derida Church podcast on the Podbean website because you can find all of Yolanda's back catalog of preaching, which is great and edifying and will take you deep and will um, give you the seeds that you need for a life-giving, authentic relationship with Jesus. And Boy, you can worship with Yolanda. You can worship, not for the Holy Spirit, you can worship with Yolando and the Saints at Derrida Prez Sundays at 1030 in person, or you can check out the YouTube, their YouTube page, Derrida Prez YouTube page and worship with them there. And if you want to know what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to our website, thegrovecharlotte.org. You can worship with us on Sunday mornings if you'll wear a mask over your mouth and your nose. Um... And that's at 10 in our sanctuary, our beautiful sanctuary with new carpet. Woo woo. And uh, you can also join us online because that counts. Somebody the other day texted me and was like, I'm sorry, Pastor, I wasn't in church, but I was online. I'm like, no, no, no. If you were I'm worshiping saying, with us online. I'm saying at Dorida that we are one church in two locations. We're hybrid, baby. In, yeah. in person we're, and online. We're meta. Yeah. We're, yeah. One church, two well, locations. So um, you can also check out the Grove Church podcast and find messages on our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>